You know the people that say, uh, if you don't like the weather in northern Michigan, just wait an hour and it'll change? You've heard that, right? You notice they don't say that in winter? They don't. It's like, uh, wait till April, then maybe it'll change. It's been a little stretch of time. It's been a tough, tough winter, and I really appreciate your faithfulness and sticking us out here with us at, at East Bay and making church ministry a part of your, um, of your culture. I was really encouraged this morning, even in our nine o'clock time, people that were part of our groups, and uh, we had a great, great time this morning then. And I want to invite any of you uh, who are not a part of that to come on out. We really have some neat group times at 9 a.m., So we last left David in the land of the Philistines. As a couple weeks ago, we were talking about um, this very account. And why was David an Israelite in the Philistines' territory? Well, he was being chased by King Saul. So I don't know if this is coming back to your memory or maybe you're hearing it for the first time. He's being chased by King Saul. And so he was running for his life with 600 men, warriors that were with him. And so he thought, you know, the best place for me to hide is in the land of the Philistines because Saul does not like the Philistines. He knows that they will try to take him on and they wanted to get Saul as well. So, hey, I'm going to go to Philistia and I am going to make sure that I'm going to be safe there. So he did Achish, who was uh, the king there over Gath, ended up giving David and his men a portion of land called Ziklag, or Ziklag, and they dwelt in that area. And then David went on to Gath, which if you remember way back in our study, Gath is where David killed a big, huge guy named, okay, so you guys are with me here, So Saul, in the meantime, knew that the Philistines were going to attack him. This is what we discussed two weeks ago. And he needed to hear from the Lord. So Saul went and called for the priest who brought out the ephod, which was over his breastplate, and and the priest reached in and dealt with these stones. If remember us talking about those, the, the Urim and the Thummim, And God would not talk with them. God would not answer Saul in any way. So Saul got desperate and searched for a medium, or in some translations, a witch from Endor, to try to give an answer. And he asked, bring up Samuel, the the prophet who had died. And so God brought up literally Samuel from the grave. In such a way, it terrified this medium and then testified to King Saul that his days were numbered and he would be taken out by the Philistines in short order. So let me just show you, man, and I have all. Someone bought me a laser pointer and they called it a tool. I call it a toy. I want to show you um, up here on the screen the journey that 
that David and his alliance took. So basically what had happened at this point, they were in Gath, and the other, um, the other military personnel of the Philistine army were at a point where they really were not trusting David anymore. They're saying, hey, this guy could take us down. They said, get him out of Gath. And so it was about a 50 or 60 mile journey. Let me see if this thing, ooh, there we go. Isn't this fun? Okay, so here is uh, Ziklag, where they were. And um, they were up in Gath in this area, in the Philistine region at that point in time. And then they ended up, um, the armies said, you know, David, we want you out of here. So they came back down to their home area of Ziklag. Down in this region, um, this is pre uh, the larger region of Israel. Down in this region were the Amalekites. You're going to see where they come in on this whole thing. Look at for Samuel 30. This is how the account begins. So starting in uh, verse 1, here's how it reads. It says, David and his men, I'm going to pop up on the screen for you. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. So it took him three days to go from Gath down to Ziklag. What they didn't know, the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They attacked Ziklag, they burned it, and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old, and they killed none of them. But they carried him off as they went on their way. David and his men reached Ziklag, and they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David had two wives that had been captured. Ahinoam of Jezreel, and as we had learned a couple weeks ago, Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Here's what we're talking about, people. Hopelessness. No silver lining. No end in sight. No light at the end of the tunnel. Unless it's the proverbial train coming in your direction. Some people say, no hope for my marriage. No hope for my children. I spoke to someone recently who said, because their child had gone off in a different direction, we've lost them. We have lost them. Maybe some are saying, no hope for my health. I spoke to a pastor friend about nine months ago, and he called me up, pastor friend from New York, and he said, Brian, I have cancer. And he said, one word they told me, and it terrifies me, they told me the word terminal. 
Some of you here today and some of you have reached in online and this is the reality that we're dealing with. We feel hopeless. Nothing will change this. All is lost. Some people feel hopeless in themselves. They look at their lives. They look at their addictions. They look at their past and they feel no hope at all. I heard a story of two friends who were talking to each other and the one remarked to his friend and said, man, you look so depressed. Whatever could you be thinking to depress you so much? And his friend quickly replied, it's my future. It's my future. His friend said, your future? Whatever in the world would make it so hopeless? To which the man said, my past. My past is what makes it hopeless. And here's where we get this sense of hopelessness. Because David and his men wept aloud. And they came to the point, their sorrow was so significant. They became of no strength. They couldn't even cry anymore. Everything seemed hopeless. And some of us sense that right now there's seemingly no way to recover a situation despite all of our attempts to do so there's a sentence there's a loss there's a death there's an illness there's a divorce there's a shame there's an addiction that all appear just insurmountable there's no way out it is unchangeable no matter what we try to do there's this old proverb that describes this sense of hopelessness and it's this You may slash at water, but you will never cut it in two. As hard as I try, as much as I do, there's no way I can ever, ever get this done. There's no changing it, no matter how much I try. It's hopeless, we feel. Well, what do we do when life seems hopeless? David gives us an excellent understanding of that right here in 1 Samuel 30. So let's jump into this thing. There's a reality of hopelessness. So I want to give us the context that he was working through, and then I want to give us the whole solution that he has to hopelessness. Watch this. So here's the reality of hopelessness. So one thing I love about David is how open he is. And this guy is real. He goes through tragedy and He expresses himself so openly. So here's here's this reality of hopelessness in his life. If if you would, look at verse 1. It mentions the Amalekites had raided, and the word in the Hebrew means they had stripped. They had taken this thing out. Now, I don't know if you can imagine this in your mind, but since they had taken the wives, they had taken the kids, they had taken the cattle... They had taken all of their belongings, and then they burned everything. And you know, when you go ahead and you burn homes and villages, there's all of the smoke, and you can smell this thing for miles and miles. And so imagine it was a 50 or 60-mile trek from Gath down to Ziklag. And imagine David and his 600 men going up and down over the mountains, and somewhere along the line, they look out toward Ziklag, and they realize, what is going on? Where's all that smoke coming from? 
And I'm sure as they're getting closer and closer, they could even smell it, and they're thinking, oh, God, please, no. No, not, not, not to our homes, not to our families, and everything that they wished it would not be, it was. Every bit of it. Everything was taken. The cattle, the homes, the valuables, the family, everything was gone. Not only did he lose all of that, here's the next thing he lost. Verse 6. It says, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his son's and daughters so here's the reality not only did david lose all of that not only did he weep like everyone else then all of a sudden he hears all these murmurs going on and it's the 600 men that are saying you know what this is this is david's fault i mean here the amalekites did it this is david's fault let's get rid of him like enough of this i want i want to give you a phrase i've had to work through in ministry and work through personally and it's this hurting people hurt people have you heard that before hurting people hurt people and oftentimes people that are hurting they don't even think who or what they just know i'm hurting i'm upset i'm looking for a stone and i'm looking for someone to throw it at and typically the leader the one up at the front of the pack is the most visible individual that's going to get the stones thrown at them. And so here in this situation, this was David's hopeless moment. No home, no family, no support. His life was threatened and mentioned he was in great distress. He had no more strength, not even enough strength to cry this was the bottom of the barrel moment for david but what did he do what do we do in those moments of hopelessness so here we're going to see the resource of strength the resource of strength now i want to show you a contrast and then we're going to pick out an important word so here's the contrast between two verses, there's verse 4 and verse 6. So look at the contrast between these two things. It mentions in verse 4, David and his men had no strength. No strength left to even weep. But then in verse 6, after all of this had happened, it mentions this. And would you say verse 6 with me that's up on the screen? Because this is so critical, friends. This is the key for hope in hopeless situations. Read it with me, would you? But David found in the... This is key. This is the key. David found strength in the Lord, his God. Now I want to ask you that back. Who did David find strength in? Okay, now you said it right. Because some people may say, in God. It doesn't say that. 
in the Lord. It, it doesn't say that. And the God of Israel, it doesn't say that. And the God of Jacob and Abraham and Isaac, it doesn't say that. There's a really important word in there that the writer puts in intentionally, and it's this. The Lord, what is it? His God. There's a difference. There's a difference. The best way I know how to illustrate it, there's a story from a long time ago I remember reading. I'm going to read it for you now. It says, There was once a Shakespearean actor who was known everywhere for his one-man shows of readings and recitations from the classics. And he would always end his performance with a dramatic reading of Psalm 23. And each night, without exception, as the actor began his recitation, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The crowd would listen attentively, and at the end, the conclusion of the psalm, they would rise in thunderous applause and appreciation of the actor's incredible ability to bring the verse to life. But one night, just before the actor was to offer his customary recital of Psalm 23, a young boy from the audience spoke up and said, Sir, can I recite Psalm 23 tonight? And the actor was kind of taken back by the crazy request, but he allowed the young boy to come forward, stand front and center on the stage and recite the psalm, knowing full well that the boy would be no match for his talent. And with a soft voice, the young boy began to recite the words of the psalm. When he was finished, there was no applause, no standing ovation. All that could be heard was weeping as every eye was wet with tears. And amazed by what he had heard, the actor came over to the boy and said, I don't understand. I've been performing Psalm 23 for years because I have a lifetime of experience and training in the arts. But I've never been able to move an audience as you have tonight. Tell me, what's your secret? And the young boy said, well, sir, you know the psalm but I know the shepherd. Here's the phrase. David found strength in the Lord, his God. His God. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. Here's what happened. Um, we keep reading Verse 7, how did he find this strength? And David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him. 
And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake him? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake him and succeed in the rescue. I just want to show you this again because it gives me a chance to play with my laser pointer. This is, um, this is the priestly garment up front. You remember this uh, from a couple weeks ago? And um, here's the 12 stones on this ephod, this apron of the priests. The 12 stones all, um, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And it's believed either at the base of this or behind this is this ephod, a open sheath that they would reach in and there were three stones inside, the Urim and the Thummim. There were two Thummim, they were equal in size and shape. You could not, by feeling, distinguish between them. It's believed by tradition that one was black and one was white. And then there was another oddly shaped stone, the Urim. And so the priest would reach in and would grab one of the Thummim, not knowing if it was black or white, and then grab the Urim and pull them out together. And then from that would be an answer from the Lord if the Urim ended up glowing or shining along with the other stone, they would say, this is an answer from the Lord. Now, here's the difference. We last saw this back in chapter 28 a couple weeks ago with Saul. It mentions here in 28.6, notice the difference. Saul inquired of the Lord... But the Lord didn't answer him by dreams or Urim in the ephod or the prophets. So interestingly enough, Saul tried this and God did not respond to him in any way. However, David, notice what the text says. David ended up doing this. David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party Will I overtake them? And friends, boom, this is the difference. All of a sudden, God speaks. And what's the difference between David and Saul? God didn't answer Saul. But God answered to David, pursue him. You'll overtake him. You'll be victorious. This is going to happen. An immediate response. And the difference is because David found strength in the Lord, his God. This was personal. He was a man after God's own heart. This was one-on-one. -on -one. This was something close. This was something abiding. This was something fulfilling. I just need to ask you right now. 
What do you find strength in? Because there are those times when it's you all by yourself. And you feel like, you know what? I'm not getting it from home. I'm not getting it from my friends. I'm not getting it at work. I'm not getting help anywhere. I need help. And where do you get your strength from? And if some people say, you know, I get it from church. No. You know, I get it from going to my group. That's nice, but no. There needs to be, and there is no substitute for something personal, something fulfilling between you and God. It's not church. It's not, well, my parents' God. It's not the supreme power. It's not, well, my faith makes me strong. There's an abiding with God. It's not just knowing facts about him or passing an exam or reciting answers. It's I'm abiding with God. Here's how Beth Moore says it. She says, without a doubt, the most precious and painful times I have had in this Christian experience were times when I realized I was all alone with God. Such times forge an unforgettable and inseparable bond. And don't miss the opportunity. I'm convinced that God sometimes stays the encouragement of others purposefully. Did you hear that? Purposefully, so that we will learn to find it in him. And the Lord is God. We're going to finish with that in just a moment, but... Let me give this to you. Here's how it finishes. Um, Restoring what was lost. So you're wondering, so how does this go? This is kind of interesting. God assured David of victory. It didn't mean an easy victory. It was a 24-hour battle. They finally reached up to him. But before they got there, here's what's interesting in verse 10. So they left his 600 men chasing after the Amalekites. Verse 10 Partway there, 200 of these guys said, we are too tired. We can't do this. Leave us here. So one-third of the army, boom, done. They said, can we just stay here? So they stayed there with the supplies, and the other 400 with David went off to fight against the Amalekites. This is interesting. It was a good lesson of faith. David didn't say, oh, my, now what are we going to do? We only have 400. Nope. God said we're going to win. We're going to win. Here we go. That's exactly what he did. So he took the 400, the 200 stayed. They were too tired to fight. So he left them. They went on and they fought for 24 hours. There were 400 escapees of the Amalekites. Other than that, they obliterated them. Everything was recovered. Verses 18 through 20, it mentions it in such a vivid way. It says, David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks, herds, 
And his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. Boom, exactly like God said, everything was coming home, just the same as they had taken it away from them in the first place. And then here I want to finish up before we finish our application. There's a great picture of grace that we need to see. Because the 400 won the battle. Now guess what? The 400 are coming back with all the wives, kids, spoils, and they run into the 200. Now let me ask you, how would you feel about that? I'm part of the 400, and we just fought for 24 hours straight. And then here's these 200 guys that have been sitting on their bum for the last day doing nothing. Now, I already told you I'm very human because I felt like staying home and videotaping my message and giving it to you. So I'm gonna tell you, in my head I'm thinking, you're not getting any of this stuff. Come on, did you think it? Oh, you're more spiritual than I am, huh? Okay, every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. You thought it, didn't you? Like, we did all the work. You did none of the work. You're getting nothing. So David comes up to these guys. Verse 21 David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him. They came out to meet David and the men with him. As David and his men approached, he asked them how they were. Well, of course they're okay. They've been sitting there for a day. Now here's the challenging part, verse 22, because it just tells me what I am. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. I didn't like that when I read that. Because it just said I might be an evil man and a troublemaker. But I thought it. Now give him his wife and his kids. Now of course, giving him his wife back may be a little bit of a punishment because like, th think it through, think it through. There's my knight in shining armor who didn't come to fight for me. Are you with me on this? A little too tired to come fight for your wife and kids? Are you following me on this? I hope you're well rested now because what those Amalekites would do to you is nothing compared to what I could do to you. I don't know if that would have happened, but I wrote in the margin of my Bible. But here's the picture. Um, here's what David said. Verse 23. No. No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. 
He's protected us, delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? So the share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to battle. All will share alike. And David made this a statue and ordinance for Israel from that day until now. This, my friends, is a picture of grace. What a great picture of grace. The guys that fought for it got the same as the guys who stayed back. And I know we say, that's not fair. They didn't deserve it, right? They didn't deserve that. This is called grace, people. This is where we all come into the story. Because guess what we deserve, huh? Reminds me of, of the account of Jesus telling his disciples a story in the Bible of the guys that came to work early in the morning and the guys that came at midday and then the guys that came later in the day. And as they left, they all got the same wage. And everyone cried, that's not fair. It's called grace. It's called grace. And you know what? In this room and on the other side of the lens, we have people from all different situations in life and some that have done these deeds and some that have done these deeds and all kinds of issues. And, and we say, you know what? This person's done a whole lot of good and this person's done a whole lot of bad and, and what they both can be forgiven because of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for their sin? Like what? That's not fair. And we say that's grace. It's a picture of grace. It's what Jesus has done for all of us. There's a few verses, and, and it reminds me of the thief on the cross. You know what? The thief on the cross is in heaven right now. Even though he never went to church a day in his life, you know? He never baptized. He never taught Sunday school. He never did anything good. Except he believed Jesus at his last moments of life, and Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He's going to be in heaven celebrating Jesus the same as you or I. It's grace. The Bible says Jesus gives to all men generously and without favoritism. To all of us who have sinned, he gives another chance to begin again. That is called grace. Are you hopeless? Is your situation hopeless? Do you feel hopeless? I want to talk through this with you as we finish. Where are you going to find hope? Don't look for it in your situation. Because I can't guarantee that. Like some people say, man, if something will just start to turn around in my situation, if my health will just come back. 
my finances will just reverse, if my investments will just skyrocket, then I'll have hope. I, I can't tell you everything will turn around. Don't look for hope in your circumstance. We need to look for it in the Lord, my God, mine. So for that to happen, we need to find out, is he, is he your God? Do you have something personal with him? Is there really a personal connection between you and God? Or is this churchianity? Is this religion? Is this I'm doing what my parents did and what their parents did? I mean, what is this for you? Is he really the Lord your God? So I want to finish this with two things. Number one, finding hope. Finding hope starts, number one, with us not being God. We're not God. If we're looking for hope in ourselves, then we think we're God. If we think I can turn this around on my own, we think we're God. If we think we can recover ourselves, forgive our sins, we have a mixed up deity. We're not our rescue, He is. We're not our boss. He is. We're not the leader. He is. So the first step is saying, I'm not God. He is. And for some of you at this very moment, that means it's time to realize I put myself in a hopeless situation because of my sin. But Jesus died on the cross bearing the penalty for my sin so I can be forgiven. That's my only way for hope. You are my God, Jesus. I believe in you. I believe that you died for my sin. Forgive me. Be my forgiver. Be my leader. Thank you for taking the hit for me on the cross. That's the first step to your my God. It starts with us not being God and letting him be God. And then number two, this is a biggie. This is the big deal for David. It's closeness. It continues with a closeness. How many of you have been in church 10 or more years of your life? Raise your hand. 20 or more years of your life. Okay. If I go much more, you're giving away your age. I know what it's like, instead of closeness, to do check marks. Do you realize what I'm saying? I went, I read, I sang, I gave. And sometimes I have confused Closeness with God, with doing duties that all may be good, but they're no substitute for a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ.
And so where we need to go with this, it's not just looking for check marks. I read my Bible verse, check. It's not allegiance to a method or a discipline, but it's rather an allegiance to Jesus. I don't want to miss my time with him. I want to worship him with others, and that's why I go to church, not because what will people think. I want to give to see Jesus' mission fulfilled, not, well, it is a help to my tax return. It's a closeness. It's abiding with him. It's talking to him. It's reading to love him. I just want to give these to you quickly, and then we're going to finish with a song. In the book, Intimacy with the Almighty, Chuck Swindoll gets into this. That would be a great book to read to go farther in this. He talks about getting into a relationship with God. He, God calls a relationship with him fellowship. He calls it friendship. He calls it our first love. He says we need to commit to time, to abide, to practice his presence in our lives. So would you stand with me? And I'm not just going to stand here and say, so read, so do. I want you to enjoy Jesus. And to be able to say like David, I found strength in the Lord my God. I enjoy him. I set up environments in my life to worship him all week long, to think about him, to read about him. I stir my heart to love him more and more and more. So with your eyes closed and head bowed, I came up with a prayer this week that I'd love for us to say together. So if you would, I'm going to say it. Would you repeat after me? Father God, thank you for the lessons I learned through my loss. For adjusting my expectations on real life on being my strength when I have none for being my hope when there is none for giving restoration when it seems impossible for giving me grace through Jesus that I don't deserve you are my God, and there is no other. Help me be close to you. Always. Amen.